Our reading this morning is from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. They both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The word of the Lord. Well, would you please join with me in prayer before we can consider this passage further? Father, just the very uh, fact that we are here is a reminder of your grace. You give us the breath that we breathe and you speak to us in your word. And so, Lord, we ask, um, wherever we are this morning, for those of us who are convinced that this is your word, that you would help us to hear, and for those of us here who this morning are, 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 are trying to understand, I ask that you would help them as well, that all of us, that you would point us to yourself and help us to know you more deeply. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So if you haven't been here with us before today, we are part of this seven-week series that was already mentioned called Explore God, where each week we are considering together a different question, uh, a question that is, is a common one for people to think through as they're trying to weigh the claims of Christianity. And this week, the question is, is Christianity too narrow? So, uh, if you know at all the Gospel of John, you know that there's this one point where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And when he's saying that, he's saying there is only one pathway to God, and it's in me. 
Now, you can contrast that with, I think, the increasingly common understanding of ways to God today. If you are part of one of our Explore God discussion groups, you'll know that at the very beginning, there's a video that we see that's usually about two or three minutes of kind of interviews of people kind of on the street expressing their opinions. And related to this, these were some of the things that people said. Um, One person said, it's ignorant to say that Christianity is the only right religion. I don't know what the right religion is. Another person, each person has their own pathway to God. A third, my view on anyone who claims to have a monopoly on truth is that there is no one truth about anything. I think a lot of religions say the same thing in different ways. Now, this isn't just kind of an unusual group of people who are saying this. According to a study that was about actually a decade ago, so it's probably even more this way since then, nearly one half of people in America believe it doesn't matter which religion you follow because they all teach the same basic lesson. So you feel the tension, I hope. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are many pathways to God. Isn't this statement, isn't Christianity too narrow? Perhaps you identify with that question. And I want to say, I think that question flows from a, shall we say, a virtuous desire and instinct. A desire not to be arrogant. We've all probably experienced people who are obnoxious about being right, who seem so certain about what they believe and look down on everyone else, and we don't want to be that person. What's more, perhaps some of you, like me, have had an experience where you've befriended someone and you admire them and they are people of integrity and kindness, and yet their religious views are dramatically different from yours. And and to say that they are wrong and you are right, it feels almost like you're saying that you are better than them and you know that isn't true. Or perhaps you, like me, have thought about this fact that If you were to have grown up in the situation that your friend has grown up, that friend who maybe believes differently, maybe it's Muslim or maybe it's something else, if you grew up in that family, it's quite likely that you would believe what they believe, right? Generally, people who grow up in Christian homes become Christians. People who grow up in Muslim homes become Muslim. So so if that's the case, who are we to say that we are right and, and they're wrong? Who are we to say that, that we have a monopoly on the truth? See, it's a desire to, to, to recognize our limitations and awareness that deeply virtuous people can disagree. And if, and if you can have totally different opinions and yet be a deeply virtuous person, then maybe it's better to say there are multiple pathways. Maybe it's better to say there are multiple truths. There's more than one right way. Now, while I really do believe this comes from a a, a good desire, I want to suggest that that conclusion actually doesn't work. That it doesn't actually bring us to humility and freedom from arrogance that we're pursuing. So I was reading a, a book, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in Manhattan, was talking about a time where he was part of a kind of group dialogue, a panel for a a college. And he and uh, a a Muslim imam and a Jewish rabbi 
were all kind of in dialogue with each other. And the, the conversation between the three of them as they were exploring their different understandings of God was, were cordial and respectful. And, and also they came to certain agreements. They agreed that they had significant and irreconcilable differences with each other. For example, they all agreed with the statement that if the Christian view of Jesus is right and Jesus is God, then Jews and Muslims are deficient in the way they are loving God. And likewise, if the Christian view of Jesus is wrong, then the Christian view of, of God is deficient in the way that they love God. So what was interesting was the response to this dialogue where all three of these different religious leaders were in agreement about these. In reaction, the students who were watching, you know, were very upset. They, they believed that this was a deeply intolerant conversation. Like, to say that one religion might be right and the other ones might be wrong is to say that there's a monopoly on the truth. And who are we to say that we have a monopoly on the truth? Isn't it enough, they say, to just believe in God and seek to love other people? So, I hope you see an irony in this moment. When these students are saying, it is wrong, it is intolerant to say that your beliefs are right and others are wrong, they are in that very moment saying all three of those religious leaders are mistaken, right? To say that, that really it doesn't matter a lot of what you believe as long as you generally have a belief in God and as long as you generally love people, that's all that matters. They are saying the traditional religions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, all of which claim it does matter, all of them are mistaken. Now, maybe you share the viewpoint of these students, but at least, hopefully, you recognize that it is a viewpoint. It is a claim, and that means no matter what, someone has to be wrong. Right? That, that follows it, that someone has to be It's not intolerant to say that the people that you disagree with are wrong and you're right. If you don't believe you're right, then why do you believe that position anyway? Everyone has a certain belief, and that belief means that they believe other people are wrong. And, and it doesn't even matter the fact that it might be the belief that was formed in you as you grew up and that you sincerely hold it. Consider this. Say, say you were born and raised in the South in the 19th century, and you were born and raised in a family that had slaves. And you were taught to be virtuous, to be a gentleman, or to be someone who's, you know, a virtuous woman, and yet at the same time you were taught that slavery is just a normal part of, of life, something that is appropriate. Imagine someone comes to you from the abolitionist movement, maybe someone from England, and they come and say, what you're doing is, is just wrong. Slavery is wrong. It is wrong to say a certain race should be enslaved, and you come back, say, hey, that's your opinion, and I have my opinion. And, and really, honestly, it's because we both grew up in different contexts. I grew up in the South, so this is what I believe. You grew up in England, this is what you believe. We all have a right to our own truth. 
Now, on one hand, much of what you're saying is right. This is largely a product of your upbringing, and yet, even still, even though you're sincere, even though it's because of the way you brought up, you are wrong. And what you are doing is morally reprehensible. See, my point is just, it's not intolerant to believe that people who are earnest, who have believed what they've grown up in, are mistaken. That is what everyone believes. It's just being honest. If you believe in Islam, you believe that others are mistaken. If you believe that every religion has just a little bit of truth and all that matters is we love people, that's your belief and you believe everyone else is wrong. That's, that's not intolerant, that's just being honest. The, the question, if we're trying to think through what, what is humble and what is arrogant, is what we do with our disagreement. What we do with people with whom we disagree. How do we treat those who are on the outside group who are not one of us? Do we treat them with humility or do we treat them with arrogance? Are we kind or are we cruel? And I want to suggest that, that when we start thinking that, we start recognizing that the belief that all that matters is just us being tolerant of everyone else actually doesn't come out as well as we might think it does. So a quick thought experiment. Imagine there's a local celebrity, let's say he's like a retired baseball player or something like that who's in the area, and he still is somewhat famous, and he's really active on social media, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, and at one point he posts something without thinking, and it's crude, and it's either racist or sexist, and it goes viral. I mean, everyone's retweeting it. Everyone starts commenting on it. People start calling him out because, of course, when someone says something bad, if you don't call them out, that means you agree with them. So everyone is piling on this guy. What happens to him in that moment? What happens if he even apologizes and says, I was, I was wrong? Does he suddenly get welcomed back and say, we understand there are differences? No. In this culture where tolerance is everything, if you show that you have some degree of intolerance, you are out. You are shunned. You are destroyed. Is that tolerance? I mean, we know that's what happens because we see it, right? We see it with politicians. We see it with celebrities. We see it with high school Catholic school kids. Now, to be honest, we know, we know if we look at the church that there are times that the church has not done much better. There are times, whether it's at a political level or personally, that we have seen an arrogance and a cruelty within the church towards those with whom they disagree. But I want to ask you to consider the possibility that that is because people misunderstand the gospel. And that true Christianity, the true Christianity of what the Bible teaches is actually a humble and extraordinarily welcoming to all set of beliefs. And, and we see that in the passage that was just read. So, so we're looking at a chapter of Acts, a section of Acts, which where the writer Luke is trying to outline the story of how the church grows from Jerusalem throughout the world. And what we have here in this chapter is this this unusual man that we never see him again. It's just in this brief moment that we learn about him. And we learn a number of important details about him, right? We, we learn that he's black. He's from Ethiopia, more than a thousand miles away. 
we learn he's devout, right? I mean, he has traveled a thousand miles on a chariot. That's a many-month travel to get to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God. That's devout. We learn that he's important. I mean, to have a chariot already shows that. To have a scroll, a scroll of Isaiah, which he has, shows that. But also we're told that he is the treasurer of the queen of Ethiopia, the secretary of treasury. This is a very important person, very powerful. And yet along with all these things, we know one other thing about him, and that is he is an outcast. We're told he's a eunuch. He is someone who has been sexually altered. Luke sees that it's such an important detail, he repeats it. It's the very heart of the story. In that day, it was not uncommon in certain cultures to take boys before they had adolescence and, and to prepare them for serving royalty by castrating them. The belief was that that would allow them as they grew to not have some of the drives or the aggression, to not have their own family so that they'd be increasingly devoted to the royalty they were serving. And so that's the truth of this man. This man, on one hand, he is in a position of significance because he's serving royalty, and yet, well, he doesn't have family. He can't have family. He doesn't belong to the queen's family in any way. In fact, he doesn't belong anywhere because he is different from everyone. His, his voice is higher. He has no facial hair. Because of a lack of testosterone, his build is slight. There is no one that he belongs to. He is an outsider. And we're told that he is returning from Jerusalem, and that means he has experienced something that would have only reinforced that feeling for him. See, Jewish law says that if you are a Gentile and if you are a eunuch, you cannot enter beyond the outer temple courts. So imagine how this man traveling for weeks, for months, just to come to the temple to worship God, coming to the outer gate and being told, sorry, because of what you are, you cannot get any closer to God. After a thousand miles, you're not allowed the final hundred feet. Imagine as he's returning how, how dirty he must have felt. How alone. But he's not alone. Because we're told even as he is departing, at the very same time God is sending Philip, one of the great leaders of the early church, saying through an angel, go to this desert road in Gaza. Now there is nothing there. Philip was probably confused. Why? This doesn't seem like a strategic spot. There is one thing there. There is that man. And so as, as Philip is walking down and this chariot suddenly goes by him and he sees this Ethiopian man riding it and he suddenly kind of gets this, this nudge from God saying, go up and, and join with him in the chariot. Which, which, let me just say, is kind of this awkward command that God is giving. Um, because first, first Philip was going to have to run to catch up and running was something you just kind of didn't do in that day if you were an adult. But even more, imagine the scene. So you have the Ethiopian, and um, in that day, if you read, it was always reading out loud. That was just the way it was done. And he's reading out loud from the scroll of Isaiah, and suddenly he looks down, and he sees this guy. Excuse me, um, do you need help understanding what you're reading? I mean, this is not a typical kind of experience. I mean, it would have been almost humorous, except the Ethiopian's like, okay, what's going on here? And yet, he did need help. 
And so in that moment, he, he says to Philip, who's kind of running out of breath, uh, how, how can I understand unless someone comes to guide me? And he invites him up to the chariot, and Philip joins him. Now, you should know that what this man is reading is highly significant. He, it says he has the prophet Isaiah. And there is this um, promise in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah 56, that is central, I think, to this person's life, central to this person's hope. Um, in Isaiah 56, it says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am worthless. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Can you imagine how precious these words must have been for this man? Here, the God of the universe is saying that eunuchs have a place with me that there will be a day where they will be welcomed into my house and they have an eternal belonging to my people. How much this eunuch must have held on to this. Perhaps this is even why he went there in the first place to know here at least was a place who understood him, who cared about him, who wanted him. But he's not reading Isaiah 56 right now. We're told where he's reading. It's, it's actually Isaiah 53. A couple chapters before, and, and, and I think we're, we can only assume that he is, he's trying to solve the puzzle. So 56 makes this promise that one day it will belong. When? How is it going to happen? So he backs up, and, and he's reading about this man. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. He somehow, I mean, he's confused. He doesn't know what's going on, but somehow he feels like this person that's being described, this person who's rejected by his own people is highly significant in understanding how it's going to happen that one day he will be included. And so he asks, as Philip is now sitting by him, he says, tell me, who is this prophet speaking about? Is he speaking about himself? Or, or is he talking about someone else? And so Philip, being given like the perfect opening, answers his question by telling him about Jesus. By telling him the story of Jesus who was God's appointed king and yet was an outcast among his own people. The story of how Jesus was, was rejected, was despised, was crucified by his own people, and yet God the Father raised him up. The story of how Jesus, after rising from the dead, declared that he has conquered sin and death, and that all people, all people, Jews, Gentiles, whoever, are welcome to God, that he has made a pathway to God through him, and all may enter. And it's almost as if, like you're looking at when we see the Ethiopian's response, like he gets it before even Philip expects him to. It's almost like he interrupts and says, yes, yes, I get it. Now, here's a pond right here. What prevents me from being baptized? 
And that is really the significant question because to be baptized wasn't just a sign of faith. To be baptized was an initiation. It was to be brought in to the people of God. It was for someone to receive the promise of God and to be declared as belonging to the people of God. If you are baptized, you are my brother. And Philip knew that. And so the Ethiopian is saying, I believe. I believe in Jesus. You say, through Jesus, I have a way to God. What prevents me from entering into the people of God and belonging? And I wonder if Philip, a part of him at least, hesitated. Because he could have said, well, kind of a lot prevents you. I mean, you and I are honestly really different from different places. We have different customs. My guess is you don't celebrate a lot of the feasts that I do. Or if he was really honest, he could have said, and honestly, your difference, there's some things about you that just makes me uncomfortable. But that's not what Philip says, and it's because he knows that's not what Jesus would have said. That Jesus, because Jesus died to welcome all, Jesus would have said, nothing, nothing prevents you from coming to me. Believe and be baptized. And so you have this this beautiful scene when you understand it. Two very different men, a, a local, fiery Jewish preacher and a foreign, black, important, effeminate Ethiopian going down into the water together with the former baptizing the latter and both of them coming up as brothers. And for the first time in his life, this man belongs. It's interesting to me that Luke includes this story because, as I said, this book of Acts is really meant to chart like the the major events of how the church grows and expands. And and this moment is not historically significant. We don't see large groups of people being changed. It's just about one man. But to Luke, this is significant because it shows us the kind of God that our God is. He's the kind of God who sends one of his best preachers to the middle of nowhere to find one outcast man and bring him home. More to the point, he's the kind of God who actually gives his own son into this world who suffers and dies so that no one anymore would be excluded, but all would be welcome through him. See, what what makes the Christian gospel so extraordinary so different from any of the other religions I understand is that no one is disqualified from coming to God through Jesus. No one. Because it's not ultimately about who we are and about our qualifications. It's about Jesus. It's never about if we're good enough. It's the fact that Jesus already is good enough for us. It's never about what we deserve, the punishment that we deserve to happen to us because Jesus has already endured the punishment that we deserve on our behalf. Jesus is what it's all about, which means everyone is welcome. I mentioned earlier that I realized that sometimes our church, we as a church, Christians throughout the world, are our own worst enemies because we still are people who have all sorts of mess and sometimes we don't recognize this and we show our arrogance, but I want you to consider something else on the other side of this equation. So most 
of the world religions are very specifically located in a particular culture. So, for example, uh, Islam, about 90% are in that band of, you know, like Northern Africa, the Middle East, and, and a part of Asia. 90% of Islam. 90% of Buddhism is in Southeast Asia. 90% of Hinduism is in India and the surrounding areas. See, each of them have a specific culture that they somehow are able to connect to, but but here's the thing, Christianity is a truly global religion. 25% of all Christians are in Europe. 25% are in Central and South America. 25% are in Africa. And the remaining 25% is pretty much equally divided between North America and Asia. It is everywhere. Why is that? And I would suggest the answer is because there is something uniquely inclusive about the Christian gospel. That because it's not about who we are, but because who Jesus is, that means that all are welcome. The gospel says, it doesn't matter what language you speak, it doesn't matter what culture is yours, you are welcome, come to me. The gospel says it doesn't matter if you are smart or if you feel like you're uneducated. It doesn't matter if you feel like you're really comfortable with people or if you're incredibly socially awkward, come to me. The gospel says it doesn't matter what you have done and how deep your shame is. Come to me, Jesus says. Believe in me and all are welcome. You know, we've asked the question, is, is Christianity too narrow? I would like you to consider this. I'd like you to consider this. There's a passage between Isaiah 53 and 56, Isaiah 55. And, and God in it says, come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Incline your ear and come to me here that you may live. If you want to understand what Christianity is about, know that this expresses the heart of God. This morning, no matter what is true of you, no matter what you have done, no matter who you are, no matter how much of an outcast you feel, Jesus says, come, all are welcome to come to me. As is our custom, I'd like us to, to spend some time to just kind of um, reflect, pray, maybe if it's appropriate to confess our sins, and to do so silently, and in a few minutes' time, I'll, I'll lead us in prayer. Would you please silently respond to God's word with me. Father, I confess, and my guess is I speak on behalf of many, that there are often times that I do not trust in your grace. Um, you invite me. You, you declare your love for me, for us. 
You have given your son to bring us home, and yet we struggle to believe that your love could be real. Lord, forgive me, forgive us for a lack of faith in your love for us, for a lack of trusting ourselves to your son. Lord, I pray even now for those who are, who are trying to understand you more clearly. Would you please open our eyes and our hearts and convince us of the reality of the love of Jesus? Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We've already read from this, but as we consider the love of God, Isaiah 53 reminds us again, surely he has borne our griefs, and he that is Jesus has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ was pierced for your transgressions, and he died for your sins. In him, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God. In the Bible, um, when God makes certain promises, covenants with his people, they're almost always accompanied by a sign. 